Okay, everybody. Well, we're here today with uh, Suresh Dakshina. Uh, and this is going to be an interesting uh, interview, I believe. You know, we've talked a lot about the impact of the coronavirus on merchant sales, on portfolio valuations, and so forth. But today, I want to get into the weeds a little bit with Suresh and talk about chargebacks. Now, uh, Suresh, I know we've interviewed you in the past, but, you know, for folks who may not be familiar, who, you know, didn't hear when we spoke to you about a year ago, would you mind explaining what brought you to uh, create Chargeback Gurus? Absolutely. Well, I first wanted to thank uh, Patty and James for uh, bringing me onto the show. Uh, you know, I listen to your podcast I have a lot, so thank you for having me on the show. Um, to answer your question, uh, I have more than 17 years of experience in the uh, payment space. I have uh, worked with issuers, I have worked with acquirers, and also I have multiple ventures that I have started and I have sold them successfully. And while uh, you know I was actually a merchant, I have faced chargebacks in 2003. Mm -hmm. And when I faced my first chargeback, I, I didn't know how to fight it. And when I reached out to the resources, uh, there was very limited information about chargebacks. And even my payment processor was not in a position to assist me on fighting the disputes. So I took the painful process of uh, doing several iterations and fighting the disputes with the proper documentation. And after, you know, well, six to one month of iteration, I was able to recover almost 95% of my disputes. And wow. while I was actually having one of my customer service ventures, my clients wanted me to dispute chargebacks for them because they were facing chargebacks as well. And we started actually helping them as a value-added service, and we recovered more than 90% for them as well. And one of our clients said, hey, you guys are so good at this. There are call centers dime a dozen, so why don't you just venture into a chargeback business? And that made me actually do some research. And we did about one year of research uh, to identify the markets, to identify what the scope is. And at that time, actually, it was um, the, the revenue loss due to chargebacks was close to 800 million. And now we have reached more than 20 billion. So wow. this industry is increasing and we found an opportunity and we thought this can create a win-win situation for the merchants as well as for us, and hence we started Chargeback Gurus in 2014. So that was uh, the way to hear you describe it. It was almost like baptism by fire, wasn't it? Yep, that's correct. So, uh, well, well, that's really interesting. Maybe you can uh, give us a sense, because obviously you've been imbued in, in, in this for some time now. You know, how big of a problem are chargebacks now? And, and maybe just to give everybody a, a better feel for it, you know, how do chargebacks work? What are, you know, which party bears the uh, financial burden in a chargeback situation? So when it comes to chargebacks, there are uh, four parties involved here. Of course, the customer and their bank, we call it as an issuing bank, and then the payment processor, who we call it as an acquiring bank, and the merchant. So these are the four parties involved when a chargeback happens. In a nutshell, when a customer is engaging in a transaction, paying through credit card, they have the rights to dispute any transaction. The, Correct. The challenge that comes in is that we cannot anticipate the customer to tell the truth or to know the truth all the time. So whatever they convey to their issuing bank, it's taken on a face value and the dispute happens and the merchant actually holds the liability until they dispute the transaction. So if the merchant do not dispute the transaction, then the liability falls on them and they have to pay the fee. Okay. If the merchant decides to dispute, 
they send the dispute evidence to the issuing bank and they are the deciding authority and they decide if the merchant has conducted a fair business if they have delivered the product or the service they were obligated to do and then they decide if they are going to favor the merchant or the customer so ultimately if a merchant decides not to fight based on our evaluation a merchant can lose up to three times the revenue so a 100 dollar transaction after a dispute if they decide not to fight it can even cost them close to 300 dollars and that cost comes from a uh, lost cost i mean from customer attrition from the from fines where where exactly do those costs come from so the cost comes from actually so the merchant for example on a 100 dollar transaction they lose the 100 dollars if they don't dispute it correct they have also lost the product because they have shipped the product or the service to them okay. they also have marketing cost associated with it because in order for them to acquire a customer they have marketing dollars so they have sure. to spend marketing dollars they also have to actually spend money on operational cost right because they have internal people who are actually looking at the orders processing the orders shipping the products so they have to incur those costs as well and most important they have paid the transaction fees so for every transaction you could be you still pay the fee that you owe the card networks and the payment processor so when you add up all these fees your time and effort it can equate up to three times the revenue loss on a 100 dollar transaction wow you know th- that kind of brings me to to the current situation you know i've seen a lot of reports that uh chargeback volume is growing um and will continue to grow uh as uh the coronavirus uh, coronavirus uh pandemic continues and even after it subsides and i was wondering if maybe you could explain some of the why's and wherefores behind this and perhaps uh even elaborate on some of the merchant categories where uh we're seeing a lot of spikes in chargeback activity absolutely whenever there is an epidemic like this people tend to be in a panic situation and it's normal human behavior right sure so it is also estimated that more than 5 million people can apply for unemployment so whenever there is a huge spike in unemployment rate people mm-hmm. are going to cut back on their like to have things of course sure. the basic utilities they are going to buy it but the want to have like you know we are talking about travel we are talking about concerts we are talking about entertainment these are the transactions which are going to see a huge impact and when people are not actually people have paid for airline tickets people have paid for hotels they have paid for concerts so when the pandemic happens of course all the events have been canceled and they couldn't travel so people think they can call their bank and they can file a dispute because it's easier for them right. sometimes they don't remember where they purchased it they don't even remember what the customer service phone number is all they see is the phone number at the back of the card anytime you have an issue call us and the banks are open 24/7 so consumers do not realize the impact it can have when they file a dispute so when they are in a panic mode of course they are they're going to call their you know issuing banks and they're going to file a dispute and that's why banks are already seeing a spike in disputes right now especially uh, we have seen a spike in the airline industry hospitality uh, entertainment transportation gaming uh, cruises of course and retail stores as well and the retail stores as well is that uh, are they are we talking about online sales there or are we talking about brick and mortar or both we are talking about phys- physical retail as well because people want to return the item they don't like it and now right. the stores are closed so 
so they couldn't return the item they think it's easy to call the bank and file it ah sure sure and also i would imagine you know people are like oh i bought this and now i'm i'm scared i'm going to lose my job so i want to return it and absolutely they want sure. to save the money they don't want to incur a credit card bill so they are calling their issuers and they are actually filing a dispute so we have seen an increase and we are expecting an increase of up to 15 to 20% on the overall dispute volume uh, due to this covid-19 situation one of the things if i could jump in real quick um, sure. i just thought of you know do you think there'll be an issue suresh with you know business owners not only are they you know their businesses shut down let's say but do you think there might be an issue for these business owners where they might lose a larger percentage of these chargebacks because if they're trying to handle it themselves they literally might not be checking their you know they might not be getting their mail to get notices or you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying like they might be unplugged from their business to the extent that somebody filing a a friendly fraud type dispute where really they did buy the thing and really they're just trying to get their money because they're broke um do you see a situation where business owners might not be in a position operationally to deal with these chargebacks themselves and thus lose the chargeback by default well that's a great question um you know visa uh, american express and other card networks are well aware of the situation so visa has implemented a policy where they said an issuer cannot raise more than 50 disputes a day okay. so they have a limitation right now and they are requesting issuers to investigate every single dispute and they are mandated to let the consumer know they have to call the merchant to resolve the dispute before calling the bank so that is a mandate mm. that was released by visa recently and i'm hoping the issuers when they receive a call are going to emphasize this now so, american so, express on the other hand yes now i was just wondering so what in terms of having to call the merchant so you're saying if i you know have second thoughts because i bought this new stereo and i call my my issuer the issuer is going to say to me patty you have to go to the place where you bought that first and then if you can't resolve it come back to us Yes, they okay. are going to advise the merchant or uh, the consumer uh, to call the merchant first, try to resolve it. If not, then they are going to actually take the call. Okay. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that's okay. And American Express is uh, opening up a policy right now. They are working very hard to help the merchants as well as the consumer. So now they are planning on reaching out to the merchant to find out if they can provide any additional documentation. so that they can review these cases prior to accepting a dispute because once it becomes a dispute it becomes expensive for the merchant sure. as well as the acquirer who's involved so they are going an extra step to find out if merchant can shed some light on these transactions which are about to get into dispute so that is a very welcoming um, you know uh, in a welcoming way of actually reducing some of the disputes sure sure What about are there any other uh, tools or guidance that the brands have issued uh, that address these potential spikes in chargebacks? Absolutely. So, uh, due to the uh, COVID-19, uh, you know, starting April uh, 1st, uh-huh. Visa has uh, received uh, a notice stating that they will be monitoring the dispute volume for airlines, entertainment, uh, lodging, transportation and travel services mm-hmm. and uh, they are going to be temporarily suspending their visa dispute monitoring program and visa fraud monitoring program in the travel and entertainment industry until july and yeah. they know that these industries are going to see a spike in fraud as well as disputes 
So they are actually pausing this temporarily for these merchants. And and and, and can can you explain exactly what those what those particular programs did? I know we talked about that so, about a year ago, but correct. So the could, Visa Dispute Monitoring Program, what it does is it monitors the chargeback to transaction ratio, uh-huh. and they have a 0.9 percent threshold. Right. And the same goes true for visa fraud monitoring. Uh-huh. And because the travel and entertainment industry has been hit, you know, deeply by the COVID-19, it is natural for the merchants to see a spike beyond the 0.9%, sure. uh, you know, during the situation. So visa is temporarily suspending them. Okay, I gotcha. Until and, and, July and, 1st, so that they can give some relaxation room for the merchants in that area. Right, gives them some breathing room and they're not going to uh, find Correct. themselves on the outs, sure. Um, Absolutely. Do you see any other new mandates out of the card brands, you know, say once the COVID-19 yes. situation is under control? Well, um, or even that, or even before. American Express, sure. Yeah, so American Express actually is extending their dispute response time. Okay. So they are increasing their dispute response time from 15 days to 30 days. Okay. So that there's no having to address the disputes. And also, they are removing the signature requirements on all retail transactions to avoid contact to the point-of-sale terminal. Okay. And also, they have raised the contactless payment transaction threshold, again, to avoid contacts with the POS terminal. So these three are great initiatives during the COVID situation. And they are also sending messages to all their card members requesting them to initiate purchases without any contact with the seller physically. And they are also encouraging card members to buy online or do order takeouts so that it can, you know, uh, it can actually eliminate the physical contact. You know, that's very interesting because I was just reading the other day about how the uh, European Banking Authority had had, uh, issued a, a bulletin to payment services providers there to encourage more contactless use, and I believe they raised the threshold as well, uh, you know, the transaction threshold for contactless. So it sounds yes. to me like what you're saying is what Amex is doing is similar to what's going on in Europe right now. Absolutely. In terms of and, uh, I, see the, I see the press release from MasterCard as well. So they have actually increased the uh, transaction limit up to $250 on contactless payments in Canada. And right. uh, I heard that they have also raised all around the globe, about 17 countries, they have increased the transaction threshold for contactless payments. So they're encouraging merchants to go contactless right now. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. This is really, really interesting, uh, Suresh. Uh, wondering what if, you know, a lot of the folks that listen to the podcast, as you know, are ISOs and agents. And I'm wondering if you could maybe offer some um, insights on how they might be, you know, might work with the merchants to avoid spikes in disputed transactions in the current environment. Absolutely. Well, I always try to see the brighter side on any situation. So uh, when an ISO comes to me or an agent comes to me and asks, hey, what can I do at this situation? I always tell them, the merchants will always remember how you help them during crisis. So this is a greater opportunity for every ISON agent to strengthen their relationship with their merchants. I would highly recommend ISOs and agents to just call their merchants, find out how the situation is, what they are doing, because ISOs and agents sometimes will have access to their records, so they will know if a merchant is seeing a chargeback spike. 
if they have seen a merchant having a very strong decline in the transaction count or a spike in chargeback count, you need to call them right away. And just to call them and tell them I'm there for you mm-hmm. and I can actually assist you in whatever ways you can, that's going to go a long way and you have a long-lasting merchant in your books. And also some of the tips that I normally share with the merchants is inspect your chargebacks. Try to find out why these chargebacks are originating. If you have a policy and you know that mer- consumers are upset, relax your refund policy, relax your return policy. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you don't want disputes and you want to retain your customers. And the customers will, of course, remember you, how you served them during crisis. Sure. We the have actually thing. relaxed our policy. Mm-hmm. You know, in our, in our business, we have relaxed policies for some of the merchants who couldn't actually pay us on time. We said, you know what? No problem. We'll give you the extension. Take your time. And I know when we work with them during crisis, they sure. will be a long-lasting customer. So that's the recommendation I'll make to every ISON agent. Use this opportunity. Now, you are not going to acquire a lot of new businesses, but you can take this time to strengthen your relationship with your existing merchants. That's, wow, a, that's very good advice, Suresh. And in fact, it's sort of like what you're saying, what the ISOs and agents need to be doing with their merchants is very similar to what the merchants need to be doing with their customers. We all just need to be helping each other out right now. Um, Absolutely. Well, thank you, Suresh. This has really, really been helpful. James, before I uh, do a, uh, a final question, I just want to make sure, do you have any questions for, any other questions for Suresh? No, I, you know, I think it's it's so interesting. And, and Suresh, one of the things you touched on a minute ago that I really uh, am glad you brought up was the idea of contactless. Um, you know, even I know uh, Clover uh, put out an announcement of some changes you can make to the system where it won't require signature and, and you know different things. Um, and I think that's even going to become more important as you know these businesses that are currently closed as they open back up for business, hopefully in six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, whatever it's going to be, when they open back up for business, you know people are still going to be very nervous about you know the transmission of this uh, virus. And so uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's really uh, interesting. And I think the fact that the card brands are lifting some of these restrictions and stuff, I think that's uh, that that's really powerful. So yeah, just great infra- information as always, Suresh. I really appreciate you sharing that with us today. Yes, thank I really you very do. much, Patty and uh, James, and thank you for having me on the show. Hey, and just before we go, I just want to, uh, you know, allow you to give a pitch for uh, Chargeback Gurus. If anybody wants to talk to you, if you know, uh, you know, find out more information about what you are offering, uh, where should an ISO or an agent go? Absolutely. So they can actually visit our website, chargebackgurus.com. Or they can email me at win, W-I-N, at chargebackgurus.com. We provide complete chargeback protection and management solution for e-commerce and card not present merchants. So if if any of the ISOs are, um, you know, of the agents, merchants are suffering from chargebacks and they need protection and recovery, we are there to help them out. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Suresh. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. I know that this is a busy time for you. And... uh, I, uh, I, I hope uh, you stay happy and healthy and well. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Okay, the big news this week, folks, is the CARES Act, of course. And uh, James aired a, a, a two-hour event on this on uh, just this past Friday, which I believe right. should now be up on the CC Sales Pro YouTube channel. Correct. Um, but I wanted to give a high-level look at what's provided in, in terms of help for ISOs and agents. Um, and basically, there's you know three main things I think we should I wanted to talk about, and that is expanded unemployment assistance, including for 1099s, which of course is a group of workers who in the past did not qualify for unemployment checks. So under the new law, um, any 1099 who can show their income level has been impacted by the coronavirus qualifies for 39 weeks of unemployment with the federal government reimbursing the states for the amounts dispersed plus administrative costs. Right. The feds will also provide up to $600 a week in supplemental benefits for unemployed workers for up to four months through July 31st, and up to 13 weeks of federal benefits for those who remain on employment after their state benefits run out. Now, state laws vary, but most provide for a maximum of about 26 weeks of unemployment uh, uh, checks. Now, the next big thing part of the act is the, and this is, I know we you talked a lot about this at, on your uh, event on Friday, sure. is the $349 billion that has been earmarked for low interest and potentially forgivable loans to small businesses impacted by COVID-19. Right. Uh, you know, businesses that can't otherwise obtain funding for payroll and ongoing operations. The uh, loans are federally guaranteed for up to $10 million for up to eight weeks of payroll and other expenses and are available to any business with fewer than 500 employees and including sole proprietors and independent contractors, which right. I think is a big it's plus a huge, for, for folks out there. It's a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to, I have to like jump in for one second because I, sure. I uh, literally just finished right before we recorded this. I just finished reading the ruling from the fed that literally came out, I think at 10 o'clock last night or something uh -huh. um, about the payroll protection program. Um, you know, it was something written for the banks and I just finished right. reading this 30 page document. So, um, I think it is absolutely crucial that every person that is listening to this right now, um, you, you need to do two things. If you're an independent contractor and, or if you are somebody that has a ISO of any size, you have three employees, you have one employee, right. um, in, in either of those situations, two things you need to do. Number one, you need to Google the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Advance. Mm -hmm. So it's the EIDL Advance, um, where you can get up to $10,000. you are probably going to get to that. But you definitely right. want to go ahead and apply for that. It will take you probably 20 or 30 minutes to apply for it. If um, that, yes. If that. And I already, my company already applied for it. Um, it's up to $10,000. I don't yet know. We haven't gotten ours yet. And so... I don't yet know if there's a variance. Like, is it always ten thousand, or is it sometimes a thousand? I don't know, but I do know for sure that, as you said, Patty, a sole proprietor or independent contractor can absolutely apply for that. Um, yes. And the money is supposed to be coming through in as little as three business days. Now, we were we applied three business days ago, and we have heard nothing. So, I, you know, I don't know for sure, but the the idea right. is you're supposed to apply. And the other thing I will tell you is the payroll protection program. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that program is also available for independent contractors. 
Yes. Um, yes. In, a, in addition to unemployment compensation thing. So you, well, I shouldn't say that. It's an either or type thing. In other it's words, it's an either or. You can't have both. You can't right? have both. But it's like, are you going to continue working and paying yourself during this time or not? Um, right. If you're gonna, if you're not, and if you're done, then you can collect unemployment benefits. If you're going to continue, but you're being impacted, you know, by this, then you can file for the payroll protection program um, and use your 1099 miscellaneous um, document from 2019 as right. you know the proof. And so uh, the, these are things that you know, if you're listening right now, you have got to go look at this stuff. Uh, it's Dude. funny. It's funny, Patty. Today I was thinking about how ironic it is that in the quote unquote information age. You know, the information age has come about at a time when no one is willing to look at information. Yes. And it's like, yes. it's mind boggling. There was an interview this morning on Fox Business. I'm talking about like, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people are watching this, right? And they interviewed somebody today who gave absolutely false information oh. to business oh. owners. He said, if you've already laid off your employees, you cannot benefit from the payroll protection program wrong which is wrong you have right. to bring them back <laughs> it's like oh you have to bring them back oh. and you have to bring them back by june 30th right so so my thought would be you know i, I guess my question to those who are listening right now would be would be very simple uh if you're an individual person an individual contractor and i promised you that i would pay you ten thousand dollars if you would sit down for two hours and read something would you do it um, mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then what you need to do is pretty simple. Just go read the documentation on these programs, not from the news, not from Twitter, not from your friends on Facebook. Actually go to the SBA website. and SBA.gov. Yes, and actually read <laughs> the information right. um, about both the – uh, uh, both the EIDL program with the advance as well as the uh, PPP or the payroll protection program. Right, and um... – <clears throat> Excuse me. I was, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on the SBA and the Treasury websites over the last couple of days. I, I have to tell you, as as government websites go, the SBA website is very easy very to, good. you know, it's, it's very well laid out. Yes. Lots of links can link you right to the application process. Um, if you're not doing it, you're crazy. And you know, Patty, um, Patty, one other thing I have to point out here. Um, you know, this is a situation right now to where this is a first come, first serve opportunity. Meaning, right? Because there's only a fund. The fund only has ten billion dollars in it, and a lot of people are going to be applying for that. Right. And so, so you have first come, first serve. So you need to jump in. The problem is, the first people to jump in, you need to understand that even the people at your bank, even the people at your lending institution, they may not have read these documents. Mm -hmm. Right. And so. If you if you want to get this money, you need to read the documents yourself so that yes. you know exactly what you're talking about. I got the a lot of the banks uh, as we're recording this on a, on Friday. Um, se several of the banks, I believe Wells Fargo among them, had basically said we're not even going to make it available till Monday or Tuesday just because yes. of the confusion. Yeah. Now right. my bank is a small regional bank did make it available as just a paper application, but. I found a few things on it that were not, I wouldn't say incorrect, but just I knew there was some additional information because I'd read the the dot, the thirty page ruling on it, and so mm -hmm. I voluntarily gave this additional information that I know they're going to need. So right. things like that, you really can't trust anybody to know this information right now. You need to know this information. So it's it's actually not as confusing as you would think. I read the document this morning and I felt like 
it was exceedingly simple. I mean, I was like, okay, I got it. Like it's, you know, but you, you just have to take the time to read the stuff. You have to invest the time and you have to know what you're doing, you know? Um, and, and, and you're right. This, this is such a fluid situation that a lot of the banks, you know, are unaware of what's right. going on. And like, and you know, the fed, you know, the fed issued a document 10 o'clock last night. We're recording this at 11 o'clock on Friday morning. Exactly. You, you know, right. I doubt that a lot of bankers have read this. Exactly. So, so do yourself a favor, go to sba.gov, and um, you can also, uh, you know, what we'll do, I think it's okay with you, James, in our show notes, I'll put a couple links in. For sure, yes. To definitely. the Treasury and to the SBA and anything else yep. we think is pertinent so that folks can just uh, link through to, to that. Yep. But uh, the, the third program you've already brought up, and that's the emergency grants, you know, up to $10,000. Uh, and that also the SBA is uh, has a has been allotted 17 billion dollars um, in relief to loan uh, to help um, SBA loan um, lendees uh, to cover up to six months of loan payments. Um, and you know that could that could you know if you're if you're you have a merchant that's um, you know has an SBA loan out and they're hurting, uh, this could be very helpful to them for sure. Sure. You know, we, we talked about the application. I thought I'd also mention, I, I just got a press release this morning from Fiserv that it's working with its, you know, Fiserv in addition to owning First Data, of course, is a major back-end processor for banks and credit unions. And uh, it's working to help banks and credit unions accept SBA loan applications through their websites, online portals, and also through the Clover platform. Now, I don't have a lot of details on that, but if, you know, you're working with First Data, you should uh, check with them about that. And I will tell you, um, you know, just a couple things about that, that that are interesting to me. I mean, number one is I really think it's important to stress to everybody listening that, you know, you, you might be confused. Maybe you're thinking, well, I can't get approved for a loan. I don't have good credit. Um, I would never be approved for an SBA loan. It's very important you understand the programs that Patty is describing right now uh, the approval rate on these loans is is not going to be a hundred percent, but it's going to be pretty close. Pretty close. They're they're not. There's no collateralization. There's no credit uh, worthiness criteria. In fact, I was re- one of the things that really surprised me, Patty. I was reading the the ruling the Fed put out last night that you know went to the banks, the lending institutions, mm-hmm. and one of the things it said, I can't remember the exact um, uh, you know documentation on it, but the idea was. There's a check, a, a worthiness check that has to be done for an SBA loan. And this document specifically says, you know, the lending institution does not, you know, you are instructed not to concern yourself with this, you know, worthiness. Right. It, like right. it, the, the, this is just a first come first serve thing. That's all it is. So the money is there. And I have to think, Patty, I don't know your thoughts, but I have to think with the current environment and the amount and the total, the $349 billion total available, I have to think that if a bunch of businesses maybe go for the 10000 or whatever and they start running out of money, I would think they're probably even going to add a little more funding if necessary to this thing. Oh, yes. They, I, don't yeah. think they, I don't think they want a bunch of news stories of, well, I, I applied and I got declined, you know? So, you know, this In is— In fact, I, uh, Treasury Sec- uh, Secretary Mnuchin um, even said that, you know— if this money runs out, don't worry. We'll get more. We'll find more. <laughs> so, so there you go. So you got you kind of have a blank check right now with the government. So yeah, I would I, I would mean, advise a, that you fill it out. It's the ultimate in government handout. It, it's um, it really is. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So and so, you know I think Patty one I just want to back up for one second. I know you have a lot more sure. to cover today, but let's let's real quickly payroll protection program. Let me restate and see if I missed anything. 
So with the payroll protection program, now talking more to those of you that are ISO executives and managers, you know, you've got 20 employees, 100 employees, whatever it is. I, I want to be really clear. The, the way I understand it is there are several different calculations that can be used. One of them, and the one we used for our company, is you can look at your 2019 payroll, total payroll expense for 2019, excluding right. employees that made over $100,000 during the year. You can't, right. this is not for those people, but for all of your other employees, you look at that, then you take that number and divide it by 12, you get your average monthly payroll amount. Right. You can then take that number and multiply it by 2.5 to get your total loan amount. So if you had, you know, 1.2 million in payroll last year for all your under 100,000 a year salary employees, um, all of your employees that under, made under 100,000, 1.2 million divide that by 12, you have 100,000. That means you could borrow $250,000, 2.5 times 100,000. Correct. Right? Then um, what will happen is there are no payments on that debt. The interest is 1% and there's no Correct. payment on that debt uh, for a period of six months. Yes. However, after eight weeks from the time the loan was originated, at the eight week point, you can then submit documentation for all of the expenses you had for payroll, for mm -hmm. rent, for mortgage interest payments, and for utilities, utilities right? Right. And then all of that money, as long as payroll makes up 75% of it, correct. all of that money will then be forgiven, meaning you will never have to pay it back. Correct. So that's what you're looking at with this opportunity. And so, again, if you have any number of employees and you have not looked into this yet, you are crazy because this is a an enormous amount of money that's being made available during this really difficult time to help your business stay afloat and to keep your employees employed. Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing is to keep your employees employed and to keep your business running. And the government, I mean, I've never in all of my years, I've never seen a government program this this liberal, right. shall we say, you right. know, in terms of, yep. uh, well, it's, you know, it's historic allocations. Sure. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I've never seen an event like this as well. But I mean, I really think that this any 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 ISO agent or merchant out there that isn't thinking about taking advantage of this um, needs to start thinking about it. Right, right. And uh, sort of with that, I here's a, here's one of the reasons, you know, probably the biggest reason is, you know, given the uh, the state of, of, of retail sales right now, um, I wanted to share with our listeners some, some numbers on sales from um, on card-based sales from CardFlight, and this is for the week ending March 29th, so it's a week before we're recording this. But, uh, you know, overall small business sales were down 12.6% uh, week over week hmm. and almost 27% since the first week of, of March. Uh, that the dollars, transactions in dollars were down 27% for the month. Uh, and the interesting thing, 26% of small merchants have closed since March 2nd. Therefore, they're posting no new sales. Of those remaining open, the number of transactions per merchants was down 32% for the month. Not surprisingly, uh, rural areas are the hardest hit, with overall sales down 31%. In the large cities, their sale, overall sales were down about 22%. Also, not surprisingly, card present transactions are falling the hardest by nearly, nearly 50% for the month of March. 
card not present were down, transactions were down 15%. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, Tapped contactless cards or phone payments were also falling and fell 55% for the month compared to 48% drop for for EMV dipped cards. Where we're seeing an increase is, of course, invoice payments, which don't require dipping, swiping, or tapping. They were up about 10% for the month. Hmm. Um, and there's also, this is the, probably the most interesting uh, data point I got from CardFlight. There's a marked shift in shopping activity by time of day. Most small merchants are seeing their largest amount of business in the early morning between about 5 a.m. and 11 a.m. local time. And the dead zones are from about 6 p.m. onward. Hmm. Interesting. So, I've yeah, several I mean, it local just tells businesses, you, it just, um, just sort of drives home the fact that these programs, these loan programs are going to be very important for merchants. It's funny you said about the dead zone time there because I, I actually had noticed, um, like our local Dunkin' Donuts and a few others that had been um, open, um, started. They've, they've a lot of them started closing uh, at 6 p.m. now. Yeah, yeah, and, so, I, and I, I'm sure it's because of this. Yeah, you know? for sure. So, and uh, one one last news item I wanted to share with everybody, and uh, this is uh, the U.S. Payments Forum has released a resource that I think you all might find helpful to download and provide to merchants. It's uh, called Tips for a Cleaner Payment Experience. And it's available on the forum's website, which is uspaymentsforum.org, uspaymentsforum.org. And here are some of the tips that are in that document. Uh, Encourage customers to use contactless payments. Skip signature requirements if customers are using EMV chip cards. And uh, keep devices clean. Now, this third uh, tip got me to thinking, you know, that if I were selling merchant services and I still had any clients using swipe devices, I'd be handing out card reader cleaning cards sure. like they were candy. Sure. Or, better yet, I'd be con- convinced them of the wisdom of using um, chip terminals. Sure. But, but uh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I think the most important thing for, for ISOs and agents right now, as Suresh even mentioned in his interview, is to be proactive, go out there. Sure. Let the merchants know that you're there for them. This might be this might be an, an you know download this. It might be a good entree to hand out to your merchants. Yep, for sure. Wow, really good stuff, Patty. It's so it's uh, it's just crazy how fast uh, things are happening and things are changing, and and it's also crazy how much variance there is in the different markets. You know, there there's still states that don't even have stay at home orders yet. So at right. the time of this recording, I mean, things are are really still up in the air a good bit, and so it's uh, it's definitely an interesting uh, crazy time right now. It really is, and uh, I hope everybody out there stays safe and For healthy sure. and uh, can 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 keep their organizations moving. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Patty, for that great information, as always. Sure. Thank you, James. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system 
to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiLoop program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. All right, everybody, this is questions from the field. And uh, Patty, one of the questions I've gotten asked a lot lately is, what do we do? We're sitting at home. We're, you know, stay at home order. Businesses are shut down. You know, what Twiddling do we do? our thumbs. Yes. So, of course, uh, you know, if you missed the event on Friday, I, I should mention here, actually, as well, Patty, that the, the two-hour event from Friday, that will be uh, posted later this week, actually, as a special podcast episode, a long one. Um, okay. And so you will be able to listen to it in audio as well. But if you missed that, um, I talked on there about phone sales, and we're actually doing a yes. program to help people uh, be able to transition over to using the phone. Um, but, you know, the other thing that we want to talk about, of course, is social media, because even the phone can be a little bit of a challenge right now, simply because you may not have the right number you're calling. You may be calling a business number that's not active because the business is sure. closed. Um, so how do you reach business owners? Where, how do you get in front of them? Where, do, where is their attention at? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. It's on Facebook. Um, right. So, you know, this is uh, business owners, generally an older demographic. So even, you know, something like a, a, a you know, Instagram or a Snapchat uh, or a Twitter, those are not going to be as effective. Even a LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn, I'm really bullish on LinkedIn. But as far as for small business owners, they've never quite adopted the platform as a place to hang out. Um, mm -hmm. they're still hanging out on Facebook, looking at, you know, pictures of their grandkids and, you know, uh, you know, connecting with friends and, and much so and funny dog and funny dog videos, <laughs> of course, <laughs> memes, everything else. Um, and news of course, as well, and trying to see what's happening. So what do you do when you're sitting at home? Well, I've, I've mentioned in our Facebook group several times about starting your own Facebook group. And, right. um, I actually had a really interesting conversation with, with, uh, an agent that had hired me a while back as a, a kind of a consultant slash coach. And so we have a call once every couple of weeks for a half hour. And he was like, I want to go all in on this. You know, I want to build this Facebook group. And I thought, you know, this would be really interesting, kind of condense this down into a questions from the field segment. Cause I've gotten the question a lot. So let me explain exactly what I mean by this. If you are an individual agent and you have a couple of hours a day of available time on your hands and you're like, what could I do that would be enormously valuable to me down the road to build that long-term value? You know, now that I've taken advantage of the CARES Act and I've got my unemployment benefits or my uh, payroll protection program and I've got my advance and like financially now, hopefully you've taken all that information and either now or very soon, you're going to be in a, a financial position where you can maintain yourself for a little while. So what do you do? Well, what I would do if I was you is I would start a private Facebook group for business owners in your community. So let me cover a, a few key topics. Number okay. one, what do you name this group? Well, you name this group something geographic. You really want to make it clear who is not welcome in your group and who you're mm. targeting. So for me, I got rid of the group a long time ago, but I used to have a group called Blair County Business Owners um, because okay. I was selling business owners in Blair County. That was the that's what made the most sense for me uh, sure. was, you know, geographically right for you. It might be you're literally just in Atlanta, which is a huge city. So for you, it might be Atlanta business owners or whatever it is. So 
or maybe a neighborhood in Atlanta, you know, a section of Atlanta exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Sure. So, you know, be, you know, you got to look at that. Now, where you want to be careful is if you cast the net too wide, you're not going to stand out. So go to Facebook and search for that, whatever your name you're thinking of, search for it on Facebook and see what groups already exist. Mm-hmm. Um, Good if, idea. You know, if there's already a group that has 3,000 business members that has lots of posts every day, that doesn't mean you can't start one that's better. I'll explain that in a second, but it does mean you're going to have a little competition. So, you, you know, you got to be careful how wide you cast the net. You also don't want to go so narrow that nobody joins the group. So there's a balance there. Um, right. But that's you're going to name the group. Now, next, we need to define what a private Facebook group means. A private Facebook group means that people will still be able to find your Facebook group on Facebook. They'll still Uh be able to see how many members are in your Facebook group, but they won't be able to see the posts or any of the information within the group unless they request to join. Right. When they request to join, you then have the ability to approve or decline their request. You also have the ability to present them with group rules that they have to agree to before you would maybe, uh, you know, approve the request. Okay, so that's what a private Facebook group is. So you're going to start this Facebook group, create some basic rules in there. Um, The the rules are basically, again, just questions you ask people when they join. My favorite one for this purpose is simply the company name. What is the name of your company? We always do a quick check to make sure you're a good fit for a group before we accept you. Right. And now, of course, you also have their name and the name of their company, which is exactly what you need later on down the road for prospecting. So make sure you're keeping track of that in a spreadsheet somewhere of, you know, Bill Jones asked to join the group. The name of his company is Bill's Hardware Store. Um, And then you look them up on Google Maps and go ahead and put the address in there. So you're you're creating a spreadsheet of all of your members with their company name. and, And that gives you the information you need. Um, now you could ask for an email address. I've done, I've done that before. Um, it does reduce the number of people that will request to join and, and agree to your rules. Um, it's not really necessary cause you can always message people later. Um, but that's, a, that's something you could think about doing. Um, you also want to have some kind of a rule in there about self-promotion. Um, you know, the most right. important thing about making your Facebook group a, a good place for people to come is you want to make sure that nobody is allowed to self-promote, including you. This is, you know, this is not a group for you to, you know, this is not a group for you to promote your payment processing. I'll talk more about how you get business in a little bit, but that's not what this is for. Um, This is also not a group for, uh, this is not the coronavirus business group or anything like that. It just so Mm -hmm. happens that right now, sharing information about the stimulus package and sharing information about uh, the coronavirus situation is definitely a reason that a small business owner might want to be part of a group like this, but you want this group to have long-term uh, you know, validity. And so, you know, it's, it's more general in nature. Um, so once you have the group set up, you're ready to go. What do you do next? Well, the next thing is you're now going to invite all those, uh, you know, business owners that you already know from the local community. They're your clients, prospects, people you already know, reach out to them, try to get those, you know, 25 to 50 members in initially. Some of you could get a couple hundred in there, but you want to get a good number of business owners in there that you can uh, initially, um, and then you start thinking about your posts that you're going to put into this community. And, you know, the thing I have to emphasize is, again, no self-promotion. And I'm talking about you, the administrator of the group. No mm-hmm. self-promotion. Zero for at least a few months. Nothing. Right. Um, all you're thinking about is how can you add value to the group? And more specifically, how can you generate engagement in the group? So... A Facebook group is actually not a good place to broadcast information. Um, That's what you do on a Facebook page. 
a Facebook group is actually a place where you're trying to foster conversation. If you make a post and there's no interaction, Facebook algorithm will not put that into a lot of people's feeds. But if you put something up and people are liking it and commenting on it and there's interaction, you will be amazed at the reach that you'll have. Um, in our um, CC Sales Pro community, which is the name of our Facebook group for our company, <clears throat> for our you know sales reps in the industry, we have about, I think now we have a little over 800 uh, members. And every week we have about 700 to 725 of those 800 members are active members, meaning they're seeing our posts, they're engaging with our posts. Um, and that's, that's costing me zero, you know, wow, just my, great. just that's my time. Yeah. And that's why you do it. Cause Facebook is yeah. all about the groups. Um, sure. but again, if you have a group that nobody is getting value from, nobody's engaging in it, then Facebook's going to intentionally hide your posts because they don't want to annoy people with garbage and spam that they don't want to see. Right, so right. you have to think about how to add value, how to make, you know, uh, polls, you know, like, you know, curious how many of you are still open for business right now and then have a poll that says we're open or the other option might be we changed our hours or we're That's closed. what I was just going to say. How many have changed their hours because right. of this, you know? So that's the kind uh, of thing that's going to get people to interact, you know, sure. and, and, you know, answer a question. Or you might ask people to comment, you know, things like that. So then once you get those initial people in, now you need to grow the group. And the way to do that is very simply using the telephone. Um call people up. Hey, uh, you know, I'm the reason I'm calling, I'm the administrator. Don't even call as XYZ payment processing. Hey, the uh -huh. reason I'm calling is I'm the administrator for the Blair County small business group. And uh, we have a lot of information in there about the stimulus package and the coronavirus. And so we I'm calling because I don't think anybody from your company is currently a member of the group yet. Um, it's a private mm -hmm. Facebook group. It's exclusive. It's only for small business owners. Um, can I email you an invite to the group? So yeah. get their email sure. address email them a link where they can go to uh, join the group. Um, so that's how you're going to get more people into the group. It's a great use of your time. If you want to spend two, three hours a day calling businesses and getting them in, you could have hundreds of members in very, very quickly. Um, I bet, sure. Getting lots of engagement. Now it's like, okay, James, that all sounds great. How do we make money off of it? Well, first off, again, for several months, you don't. Uh, that's right. just all there is to it. You don't even try. Um, it's an you, investment. It's an investment of time, and you literally right. are, you know, really sincerely trying to help people. You know, it's, it, it, you know, Patty. One thing that's infuriating. Um, I get a lot of people that will ask me, you know, man, James, I want to do what you do. I want to put content out, and and I want to do that because I want to make money like you do. Well, <laughs> well, you won't, and yeah. and the reason is because that's not why I ever put the content out. I actually legitimately want to help salespeople and ISOs in the industry. That's why the cost for the event that I just did on, you know, well, I'm about to do right after this recording, actually. But, you know, at the time of this you know, air is going to be on Friday. You know, the cost for that two hour event was how much, Patty? Do you remember how much we charged for it? Zero. Nothing. Not one thing. And I have spent days in preparation for this thing. You know, yes. why are we doing that? Well, it's because I really want to help people. I'm gonna, on that event. I'm going to talk about a, um, a phone sales training program that I'm, you know, uh, rolling out that I would under normal circumstances charge a thousand dollars for. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm doing it for free to all of our, our uh, you know, full access members and stuff for our training that we already have. So it's like, you know, 
you, you have to actually legitimately want to help these business owners. That's the key to putting out good content is no ulterior motive, you know, nothing like that. It's literally just how can I help these small business owners the most? Um, you know, and by doing that, you're engendering goodwill and you're absolutely. fostering the opportunities for the future. Yep. And look for strategic partnerships. Reach out to attorneys uh, and mm, CPAs sure. and or say, accountants. Yeah, yeah, and say, can you please, I would like for it to have a, a really good accountant that could join the group that's willing to make one post a week in our group just to help business owners. It'll give you exposure for free. I'm bringing in a bunch of people, so it'll give you exposure. I'm sure people will message you and, and that'll start relationships. But really, I'm just looking for people like me that want to add value to the local business community. Um, right. Look for those strategic partnerships to bring those people in. So um, all of these things help. But then again, of course, you do eventually want to leverage this to make money. We're all capitalists. I get that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here to make money as well. Um, and so how do we do that? Well, what we do is once you get further down the road uh, in about two months, there's a lot of reporting that Facebook makes available to you about your top contributors and people who are engaging in the group, those who've made comments and active members. And what you're going to want to do at that point is simply go through your list of active members every week, those who are making comments. And, and as you see those comments happening, um, don't say anything about it in the group, but just go ahead and click on that person's name. And because you're the group admin, you're going to be able to message that person. So right. you're going to send them a Facebook message and just say, I'm like, hey, uh, you know, my name is James Shepard. Thanks so much for being a part of our group. I saw you were engaged in the group lately, and um, I'm really, I'd really love to actually meet you in person. I'm going to be out in the area. I wondered if I, if I could swing by, give you a business card, and say hello so we could get to know each other offline. Um, and you'll Excellent. be, yeah. and, and you know, you'll be shocked. I mean, that will give you so many appointments when this is all over. You'll be literally running around like a chicken with your head cut off with 15 appointments a day if you want, um, sure. because it's just that easy. You're going to get probably 25% of the people that joined the group. You can easily schedule a, an appointment with them once everything is over. So if you can get 300 members in your group, which is really not that hard, to be honest. I mean, if you for the next eight weeks, if you did this for two hours a day, you'd easily have 300. Easily. You know, sure. No problem. Um, so that means out of 300, you probably get 75 to 80 rock-solid appointment-scheduled leads when this is all over that actually know you. And, and not only do they, they don't know you as a salesperson, they know you as this group administrator that's a, a, an expert, that's somebody that they want to listen to. And, um, and somebody who is contributing to the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's a really great thing to do. Last tip, and then I'll be done, uh, that I didn't mention earlier. Um, one really important way to position this from a branding perspective long term, you want to have a Facebook page that you're posting things to once a week, you know, something occasional. And then you want to make sure that your group is linked to your page. To the page. I'm yes. not going to tell you how to do that because you can Google it. It's really easy. But the idea is when people come to the group, they need to see this is a group by XYZ Payments. Yes. Right? So, yes. again, you're never going to mention that. But it's just like, oh, okay. Like, so it just tells people, hey, our company, whether you're an individual you know, local brand or whatever it is, our company is doing this group just out of the goodness of our hearts and we want to help small business owners. And that really positions you well. And then when you follow up, it's like, oh, okay, I know who this is. This is probably the guy who's the CEO of XYZ Processing because this is a group by XYZ Processing. Right, right. So there you go. Good stuff. Really good stuff, James. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I hope a lot of them, I hope a lot of people listening were going to actually try this out. Um, you know, you know, Patty, one thing that's crazy about times like this, I, I don't remember who I was talking to about this the other day, some CEO, but I told him, I said, you know, you, you just know that 10 years from now, 
we're going to be hearing these stories, Patty, of people that say, you know what, uh, I, you know, I'm very successful today because I did mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z during all that coronavirus craziness, and yeah. that's what positioned me. That was my foundation, and then I built this success. Um, yeah, no, you, I the, agree. Those I stories agree. are going to be there. That, you know, you know? You know uh, from adversity comes opportunity. Absolutely. So I, I think just as an, a way of encouragement, I mean, for those of you that are like, you know, this is just the worst time and it's terrible. It is terrible, um, especially if you have family members who are suffering from this, um, you know, this COVID-19. Um, if your family is healthy, if you're healthy, count your blessings um, and, and yes. get to work and do something because most people right now are not going to do anything. And if there's one thing I've learned, Patty, over my career, it is anytime I get a chance to do something above average, anytime right. I get a chance to differentiate myself from everybody else, um, I am all in on that. I, I actually strangely enjoy that um, as, okay, wait a second. So, you know, certainly praying for those that are that are having these health concerns. And I feel sure. bad for those that are hurting financially. You know, hey, I, you know, I've got employees. I mean, our company, you know, took a huge hit. But you know what? Um, I'm I'm you know, I'm literally like from my entire building of people that that are working, uh, you know, other businesses in the office building that I'm in. I'm, I'm like the only one working right now. And mm -hmm. I, I strangely enjoy that um, because, you know, <laughs> I doesn't totally surprise me, James, you I know, you get to be a loner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the loner part of it. But the other thing I really love is, uh, you know, to a certain extent, business is a competition. You know, right. and so if if, you know, if, if nobody if you're in the NBA and, and they've shut the NBA down, well, if you know, none of the other players are practicing basketball and you're going to the gym four or five hours a day right now uh, when you're you, going to do a lot better when it comes back. Up. Yes. And I, I look at business the same way. Like, let's sure. go. You know, I mean, again, if you have if you have health issues and, and obviously you have to be safe, you have to follow all the guidelines of the government and that's the top priority. But once you've done that and you've looked realistically at your situation and your family's healthy and you're healthy, you know, what are you doing? Like, this is yeah. it. Like, what, what were you waiting this is your for? If you're healthy and your family's healthy, you shouldn't be sitting on your butt. You should be really doing something because right. this is, you know, you have a, you're in a much better position than lots of other people. Exactly. So yeah. encourage all of you out there, get something done, make something happen. And most importantly, of course, stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.